everyone. It's the Life of Jam live video podcast, season three, episode three. I'm here with Christian Livermore. Give us a wave. Author of the epic memoir and essays. Oh my gosh, it's one of my favorite books. We are not okay. An elegy for a broken America. Um, Juno Diaz said it's a moving meditation on American precarity. This book is a stunning take on poverty, poor shaming, trauma, history, memoir. It really asks us to listen in, and I did. She's a beautiful writer, memoirist, and social commentator. I'm going to read Christian's bio, and then we'll bring her in, and we'll get into the meat of the interview. So here goes. Christian's memoir, in essays, We Are Not Okay, was published by Indie Blue on October 1st, 2022. Here's what the LA Review of Books had to say about it. We are the beneficiaries of Livermore's lack of fucks, of her rejecting the luxury of a rhetoric that presupposes an inherently disordered subject can be treated with writerly orderly, of her relentless and courageous and entertaining and upsetting display of the effects of poverty. To us, Christian Livermore is saying, let me explain something to you and we need to listen. That's Robert Fromberg gave that review in the LA Review of Books. Christian is also the author of a fiction chapbook called Girl Lost and Found by Alien Buddha Press. I put the link to her uh, website in the comments. And her stories and essays have appeared widely, including in Long Reads, Santa Fe Writers, Project Salt Hill Journal, The Texas Review, Meat for Tea, and others. She has a PhD in creative writing from the University of St. Andrews in Scotland with an academic focus on medieval English literature. She's taught creative writing at Newcastle University and medieval literature at the University of St. Andrews. Welcome, Christian. It's such an honor to have you on. Woo! Thank you. I was so excited to be on. I really was been looking forward to this. I feel really blessed because through this podcast, I get to know people like you. And I would have found your book anyways because I read a lot of reviews and stuff. But when um, we talked and when we became Facebook friends and I read your, um, you sent me an early copy of this book mm-hmm. and I was just blown away. I mean, blown away, blown Thank away, you. blown Thank away, you. blown away. So Thank I've you. been raving about your book to everyone. My little sister got it. I'm going to get it for my twin. And I'm so grateful you made time for us. So if you don't mind, if you could start out reading um, a chapter from your book or an excerpt from your book, your literary voice is very distinctive and lovely. And then we'll get into the interview. So I'm going to put the camera just on you and mute me. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um Let me begin with the epigraph, and then I'm going to go right into the very opening of the book, uh, because that way you can come to it cold and you don't need any explanation. Um, So here's the epigraph. Anyone who has ever struggled with poverty knows how extremely expensive it is to be poor. James Baldwin. And I think poor people will understand what he's saying. So here's the opening. I am rummaging through the junk drawer in my father's kitchen, looking for clay or putty or caulking. I am 12 years old, and I have an assignment to the following day for earth science. I have to make a working volcano. Most of the time, there's no mustard, so I don't know how I'm going to find the ingredients for a working volcano. Even now, years later, the bar for financial security is mustard and paper towels. If I can afford both mustard and paper towels, I feel I'm doing pretty damn well. 
but on the night in question, my father has said he can't afford the plaster of Paris that I need to make this working volcano, so I'm looking for anything I can use instead. I call it my father's kitchen. It's my father's apartment, really. I live there, I suppose, but it would be more accurate to say that I occupy the back bedroom of the place. I use the bathroom, forage food from the kitchen cupboards and refrigerator, cereal and bread and government cheese and whatever else I can find. But mostly I keep to my room and my father keeps to his, lying on his bed, listening to Frank Sinatra or watching Tarzan movies. Nobel laureate Amartya Sen tells us that shame lies at the core of poverty. Anyone who grew up poor instinctively knows this to be true. She feels that shame every minute of every day. In the background, if she's feeling good, in her face, if she is not. The shame I already felt was about to get worse, and it would be ground into my bones forever. It is early in my seventh grade year. Until now, I've been in class only with students from my side of town, the poor side. But it's a small town, so the rich kids and the poor kids are now funneled into one junior high school, and I find myself sitting next to classmates sporting all the markers of wealth. Straight teeth and sandy hair, Izod t-shirts and madras skirts and boat shoes. My father bought me two new school outfits from Dor, A pair of corduroys and a flowered peasant top for the first day. Jeans and a button-down collared shirt that made me look like a security guard. I am desperate for a pair of boat shoes, and I found some at the Salvation Army that are they're a size too small. I buy them anyway, with $3 I got somewhere, and I jam my feet into them and wear them until a bony bump emerges on my heel. Eventually, I can't take the pain anymore, and I give up wearing them. The bump is there to this day. I find nothing in the kitchen, so I move to the bathroom, picking through the mounds of cotton balls and razors underneath the sink. My gaze descends the row of shelves in the bathroom closet, and finally, on the floor, there's an open bag of kitty litter. This is the last place in the apartment. There's nowhere else to look. I take the bag, turn to the sink, and remove the plastic top from an empty mouthwash bottle that's been sitting there for months. I gather cleaning supplies, go to my room, and get to work. I stir the litter into a sluice held together with flour, water, and glue until it resembles a melting ice cream sundae. I hollow out a cavity at the top, insert the mouthwash cap, and smooth the slurry around it to hold it in place. When it comes time for the volcano to erupt, I will pour a mixture of the cleaning supplies into the mouthwash cap. They will react and overflow like lava. I've tested it. It isn't what I'd hoped for, but it will work. In class the next day, I arrive before anybody else and set my volcano on the windowsill. Bits of kitty litter shake loose onto the tray, and I quickly take my seat. My classmates file in and place their exquisitely constructed volcanoes alongside it, painted, some are snow-capped, with tiny trees dotting the landscape below, some even with miniature villagers who are going to be swallowed up in the impending eruptions. As they set down their volcanoes, they cluster around mine and laugh, and I sit in my seat pretending to be engrossed in a book. The teacher arrives and class begins. One by one, my classmates demonstrate their volcanoes, which spew and sputter and send lava flowing down their perfectly crafted slopes. When we are down to one volcano, Mine. Mr. Brown calls on me to take my turn. I picture the volcano behind me, kitty little pebbles sliding off its sides, and I feel my face bloom red, and I say I haven't done the assignment. There's only one volcano left. 
and all the other students have demonstrated theirs. So Mr. Brown knows I'm lying and so do all my classmates. But Mr. Brown is a prince among men and he pretends he doesn't. He pretends to scold me for not doing my work and says that just this once, because I'm usually such a good student, he'll give me extra time. At home, I tell my father what happened and give him a note from Mr. Brown. I don't know what it says, but I think my father is embarrassed by it. He drives me to the store and buys me plaster of Paris, and I work all weekend to finish my volcano, and I demonstrate it the following Monday. The shame of this episode is with me even now. It's like a piece of gut I've coughed up into my throat, and it will be there until the day I die. Some things never leave you. You carry them forward to the third and fourth generation. Those things can be good or they can be bad. When James Baldwin wrote the words in Giovanni's room that begin this chapter, he was writing of social isolation, and one of the things he was grappling with was passing. In Giovanni's room, the scholar Valerie Rowe wrote, for Baldwin and millions of black and gay people, passing had to do with racial and sexual identity. For me, passing means something different. It's a highly freighted term for a cis white person to use, I realize, but I can think of no other way to describe it. For me, passing means trying to be anything other than what I was and what I fear so desperately I always will be. Poor white trash. How do I tell it? How do I tell it so you will understand? Not for sympathy, just so you will understand what it has done to us growing up poor. Because you have to understand, we are not okay. Thank you. Thank you. I'm a little emotional. Um, Stephanie Barbie Hammer wanted you to know that she was right there in that classroom with you. Um, you. She said passing is a not poor person. That's so well put. Um, Victoria Waddle, um, who's a librarian, um, said powerful. And then you have a friend here, Elizabeth, who's watching. Hi, Elizabeth. <laughs> I need your 50-year-old starter to add to mine. <laughs> um. You know, when I read your book, I was so struck by our intersections. And like I said, I did not grow up poor. I've told you this in the green room. I grew up blue collar, I would call it. Bill poor, my mom used to call it. Yeah, that's but a great this, idea, this idea of this student in this class, and I have a story where I wrote an essay and my mom and dad had a DV incident. And so I couldn't finish it. And so, you know, my teacher gave me a pass kind of. What Mr. Brown does for you, how you call him a prince among men, yeah. he really is nurturing you and he sees you, right? Yeah, yeah. It made me, you know, he saw right through um, my lie and knew, no, this is because she couldn't afford the supplies. And he mm -hmm. covered for me. And yeah, I, mm -hmm. I hardly ever felt that scene in my entire life, actually. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing is, he, he, I don't know how he grew up, but he was wealthy by the time he taught us. He, he invented mm -hmm. something or other and he sold it for, I don't know, a couple million dollars. So he had a lot of money, but the fact that he found the grace to still understand the student situations, I mean, he's a prince among men. So that's all I can say about him. Yeah. And the way you read is very uh, well done and it's very gripping. Um, not all people who write can read aloud. And um, I really do hear you and your voice. It's very authentic. And your book describes the abject, I mean, utter poverty you grew up in and how some wounds do not fully heal ever. And I think that's one of the, uh, you know, themes of your book. 
your family was so dirt poor. You lived in the projects. You didn't even have enough to buy basic necessities or decent food. You were malnourished. Your dad couldn't afford school supplies. Talk about how this opening story, and I'm really glad you read this one. Talk about how you're really making a distinction for the reader. You're telling us, listen, this is what poverty is. You may know what working class is, and I know what that's like, but this is how my dad grew up. This is poverty. Like you don't have enough to, my dad was in an orphanage in Montana. You don't have enough to feed your kids. Was that one of your goals to make that distinction, to make people understand what poverty is? Like, listen to this. It really was because, you know, there's a moment it, 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 you know, my whole life, uh, and I was talking about this with my sister, actually, one of, I have two sisters, I'm talking about with the sister I'm, I'm, I'm visiting, staying with, um, you know, You're in people, Connecticut right now. Yeah. I'm in Connecticut right now. Yeah. It's really nice to be home. Um, so, so many times in my life, people will say, do you want to do this? Do you want to go to this, you know, Nobu or some expensive restaurant? Do you want to go to the Hamptons for the weekend? And I, yes, I want to do all those things, but I would always say, I'm sorry, but I can't afford it. Uh, I don't have the money, I would say. And they, and they would say things like, oh yeah, you know, I can't afford it either, but I'm just decided to hell with it. I'm going to go into my savings. And I would try to explain, listen, you know, what we have here is a failure to communicate. Uh, when I say I don't have the money, I literally don't have the money. I have $3 in my checking account and I don't have a savings account, but you can never quite get it across to people. And it's not their fault because they don't have any experience of this. And it's something that it's this ugly truth that's subsumed underneath American life. We never want to, nobody ever wants to talk about it. Um, and so having a conversation with my best friend um, while in the process of writing this. And he talked about, um, he was saying, you know, until recently America to its benefit was guided by middle-class values. But then he started talking about his grandparents. You know, his father was a groundskeeper and his mother worked in a ball bearing factory. Well, that's not middle-class that's working class, but nobody you know, laureates the values of working class people or even or poor people. And so then I thought that's one of I said, that's one of the things I've got to do. I've got to make that distinction and make it clear. I mean, working class people are poor enough, but you know, then there's then there's poor people. Yeah. <laughs> then there's poor white trash. Right. You know? No, no, no. And a lot of my clients, um, I'm a public defender, as you know, and I've always talked about this subclass we've created of the incarcerated class. So people that are both very poor, so the poverty class, and then they're incarcerated. So they're a subclass of that's even lower than the poverty class because they're incarcerated because they can't make bail or whatever. And, um, you know, what's really interesting is that I used to have a friend that said, oh, why would you have bad credit when I was in law school? Someone asked me that. And I said, because I didn't have money to pay my fucking bills. Right. It's as simple as that. Why people have bad credit. Yeah, it couldn't be simpler, but people who didn't grow up that way literally don't understand because they've always been able to go to their parents for money. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, when, when my student loans went into default and I was trying to, or were about to go into default, and I was trying to talk with the woman on at the, on the at, I guess it was Sally May, and she's saying, well, can't you just borrow from your parents? And I just laughed. I said, listen, if I could have borrowed from my parents, we wouldn't be having this conversation, <laughs> but people can't even conceive of it, you know? 
And I think that's the fault of society because these are the conversations we should be having in civics classes. And, you know, in grade school, in history, we should talk, be talking about, you know, redlining and the coal miners and, and, and the, you know, the, the waste people, which were the, the people that I you know, talk about, um, Nancy Eisenberg, um, her book, White Trash, you know, they actually brought over ex-convicts and people from um, England to, to till the soil and husband the animals. And they were called waste people. They were intended to always be expendable, uh, an expendable labor pool that had no value. And we still have it. We need to talk about it. And people don't talk about this intersection between poverty that should unite the races, right? Like all super poor people, regardless of color, should be united. But the system plays this against each other. Yeah. I, and, yeah. Like yeah. I call this a super progressive. Like it's like if hillbillyology wasn't written by a you know right winger and yeah. and had a better writing style and was beautifully just it depicts real poverty, mm. true poverty. Yeah. And um and I that book's fine and I'm not putting it down. But what I'm saying is this voice in here. Yeah, you don't pull any punches. Like you tell us everything about your brother, about your mom, about your dad, you know, um, stealing money from you at one point, your mom. And I know she's doing good now and I'm really happy for that. But I mean, you kind of put the blood on the page here. Yeah, I um, I I don't know why I did that, actually. It's the only way to write it. I mean, were you hesitant, though? I mean, was it hard? It was it was really hard, but there was this moment, um, you know, the genesis of this project was really um, in my master's class at St. Andrews, my master's tutor, John Burnside, um, gave us an assignment. And I don't remember the, exactly what the assignment was, but I wound up writing the essay that became My Father Died Today. And I knew that I had to write that completely straight. You know, uh, I couldn't exaggerate, you know, his features or try to make him, you know, I had to really work very hard not to make him grotesque. And so I wound up adopting this very clean, um, hard style. And then I wound up that wound up happening, extending through the entire book. And a couple points I kept I, I, as I was writing something really awful, like in Men Who Leave, I'm thinking yeah. I stopped and I thought, are, are you really going to do this? This is probably a really bad idea. And then I said, well, I mean, I'm too far into it to stop now. And this is the result. There's blood all over the pages, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. And I mean, I think when you do it and it's your truth, it's okay. Yeah. There's no way people are really going to understand what you're talking about with, without some of the details that you put in here. You know, yeah. they may not be pretty. They may not be pleasurable. You know, I have some stuff in my books that, you know, I always went back. Oh, should I have taken that out? Oh, every time I read it, I cringe. But yeah. I'm like, no, but if you're really trying to depict the characters of your family and you. Yeah. And I'll, I'll tell you this. I have interviewed a lot of writers. I have never met a more authentic and forthright person than you. I mean, I just. Thank you. You're just like this jewel. And I I think it's really hard to be that way because we're, but like RuPaul says, you take whatever you're most ashamed about, right? Mm-hmm. And we make it our superpower. For me, it's being a high school dropout. Yeah. Like with your poverty stricken life. That yeah. You're trying to overcome. And you say throughout the book, and this is what I loved most is that you're trying to get that white trash label out of your own head. Mm-hmm. It's out of your own head that you're writing this to overcome, right? Yeah. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, of course, you never quite overcome it. But I have been really shocked uh, at the degree to which this has kind of alleviated the trauma. Because, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's like, um, you know, uh, in all these Catholic exorcism movies, you know, you can't exorcise the demon until you find out its name. Yeah. You have to name it. You have to name the thing that keeps you up at night, you know, the thing that haunts you. And then once you do, it loses a little bit of its power, you know? Yeah. I had a writing teacher, Richard Goodman, who was one of my first professors at UNO. He told me, um, you shine light on it and it kind of heals you. Right. And it heals yeah. the situation and then you can write and you can let it go. And um, my twin sister's watching. She said, I can't wait to read it. Authentically powerful. Um, I know she would love it. My younger sister, Annie's already read it um, or is reading it. Um, so talk to me about <clears throat> your path to success. You have a PhD. You're very highly educated at elite institutions. No, no, no. It's, it's really your resilience, perhaps, or personally, just who you were, determination and drive. Do you think it was a result of your upbringing? Do you think it was something inherent in you? Or do you think it was maybe a combination for you to prove all these naysayers wrong, that you were going to be the one to make it out? And you did. I mean, you might still be struggling financially, but you've made it out. You are, your book was reviewed by the LA Times Review of Books. If you're not I, a successful, oh, you <laughs> oh, and everyone, I put the link to Robert Fromberg's, who wrote this great memoir called My Life with Steve about his autistic brother. Incredible. Magnificent. Oh, I'm reading right now. He's coming on. Amazing. Yeah. He's coming on the podcast next season. I just love yeah, his book. He's that. a punk rocker too. And, yeah. um, and so, he writes this beautiful review of her book. And I mean, if that's not making it, I mean, you really should just take that as a point of pride. Like you've made it. I mean, it, you know, finances aside, you are a well-respected, well-regarded writer who's been written up in an elite um, magazine. So what do you think about that? What do you think? What do you think? How do you think you made it when a lot of your friends, a lot of my friends, a lot of people we grew up with probably couldn't? It's not through lack of trying for some people. I want to make that very clear. It's not, it's not through lack of trying. I see so many people try and they just can't, you know, because the odds are against you. They just can't yeah. claw their way out because everybody's at the top ready to beat your, you know, beat your fingers loose from the cliff edge that you're hanging on to. You know, I, I, the honest answer is I still don't quite know. I know it wasn't me. Um, it was oh. grace. It was some alchemical reaction. Uh, you know, the thing is, when you grow up poor and in a in the kind of family I grew up in, everybody's got their own shit, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. and, people, and people outside of the family just see you as another poor kid that's never going to do anything. And so, in a way, that's very freeing because there are no expectations on you. Which also means there are no restrictions on you. Like if you mm -hmm. grew up the son of doctors or the daughter of doctors, you're going to be expected to become a doctor. But yeah. if you grew up poor white trash, you're not expected to be anything other than poor white trash. And so nobody's watching. And so I guess nobody ever told me anything about what I was supposed to do. So I guess I just had those childhood dreams that I was able to nurture because you know, 
I, nobody was really paying attention except my grandmother. And I think if there's somebody who saved me, well, I, it's not somebody who saved me. My grandmother saved me. She, you know, always took me very seriously. Mm-hmm. She asked me what I wanted to do when I was seven years old. She said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, a writer. And mm-hmm. a lot of people would have said, oh, come on, you know, you got to do something, you know, become a lawyer or a doctor, something respectable. But she said, oh, writer, how interesting. What will you write? And that moment let me know that it wasn't out of reach for me. So I guess it was a strange combination of most people not watching or caring and and my grandmother caring very deeply. Mm. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. I think that's beautiful because I think, you know, like you said, it was something in you as a kid, maybe that determination. And then you had a few angels or people in your life that kind of, you know, nurtured that. My twin sister has a question and she uh, actually teaches, she was in administration. She has her PhD in education and uh, Dr. Mance uh, now teaches at a continuation high school. Oh, great. Yeah. And so um, she's nurturing some young writers in that class. So her question for you is what advice do you have for young people? Young writers in particular, or just, yeah, young writers. Don't believe what anybody says. Mm. Because they're going to tell you your work sucks. They're going to tell you this is not for you. You know, go get a job driving a bus or become an accountant. Mm. You can't be a writer. That's no kind of career. Um, You know, they'll say change this and change that. And and they'll say you're never going to make it. Um, So basically, with the exception of a very few people, nobody is going to support your writing. Um, until you make it. And then everybody wants to be around you, right? So you just have to be your own advocate. You have to be your own best fan because nobody else is going to be. I I can promise you. And it's not, it's, and you know that, right? Yeah. And and it's not you. It's, it's, it's everybody. It's society because it's, we're, we're trained not to respect writers. Um, And also that's kind of freeing because if you can manage to stop, to not listen to those people, then you can write a true thing. You can write what you really mean to say. Mm. Mm. Don't believe what anybody says. Um, And, you know, I remember Gino Diaz, who is a Pulitzer prize winning author who blurbed your book. The thing he told me when I met him in Vona is, um, you know, he did this speech and he said, I never made my writing support me. He did many things before he was a professor and a writer full time. He painted houses, he moved furniture. And I really think that idea of just doing your art for the sake of it. And I think eventually the other stuff will come. Hopefully it's really hard to monetize writing, but if you work at it and work at it and work at it, you may not monetize it the way it needs to be monetized to support you, but you can at least have it support you emotionally. Right. Yeah. And I think that's how you know if you mm-hmm. really want to be a writer. If mm-hmm. there's no money and, you know, you can't buy groceries and you still wake up at three o'clock in the morning and go, yeah. hold on, let me get this down. <laughs> then you know that that's the life for you because it ain't easy. You know, you know that yeah. too. It is not an easy life. Don't do it because you think it would be fun. Don't do it because you want to. Do it because you have to. Wow. And you know, what's interesting about what you just said is I was trying to think of today why I love writers so much. Like I hang around with lawyers all day and I love my clients. I love other lawyers. But when I'm in with writers, like in a room with writers at a workshop or at an event, there's a different, I think it's that what you, you hit on. It's that 
passion to do this, despite the fact that it's not practical. Right. It's not pragmatic. No, it's not. In fact, it can't be done. It's mm-hmm. impossible. It is, it is impossible to write a book. And yet we lunatics <laughs> are writing books. So that's kind of cool. And, and, you know, we're all a bunch of Don Quixotes. We're tilting at windmills, you know, and you, you know, you got to have respect for somebody like that. And you got to, they're fun. They're interesting. You want to be around people who are, who are chasing their dream, regardless of who's told them they can't do it. 100%. 100%. And I think that dreaming part of it, um, and Cindy Nessinger, who wrote a book about, she wrote a beautifully illustrated book uh, about a mouse at the Mission Inn in Riverside. She said, preach it. Um, and I know she's working on her next book. And I think it's that belief in yourself. And there's, you're right. The fact that how did we do this, right? You and I both have two books. How did we do it? I don't fucking know. I know. I don't fucking know either. It took me 15 years, one of them, you know, and I just kept did one story at a time. People said, you're a lawyer. What are you writing for? Why are you going to a workshop? What do you want to hang out with all those writers for? I'm like, because writers are freaking cool, dude, because they're dreamers. Like you said, we're all Don Quixote tilting at windmills. You know, my dad was a dreamer. I, he owned a bar. My dad, um, I know you haven't read my, probably haven't read my memoir, but my dad grew up um, in Montana, was in an orphanage. Him and my mom were working class poor. My dad's dream was to either have a bar or a donut shop. Mm-hmm. He got his bar. Oh, great. He my did. mom and dad had no money. I yeah. don't know how he opened this bar, a honky tonk in the worst part of town in Ontario, which is a Latino community. And that's why it probably failed rather quickly. And he was an alcoholic. And you know what they say, an alcoholic owning a bar is a disaster waiting to happen. Um, I attribute it to Mark Twain, but it's someone said that. Yeah. And um You know, it's like, I think of my dad, who despite it all, had not two friggin' nickels to rub together most times. And he was able to make that dream. You can, you made your books happen. I mean, if people, I mean, do you ever run into people and they're like, what? Um, no. You know, in fact, no, I don't. In fact, mostly what I, what I've learned to do is to, when you meet people and they ask you what you do. I've, I've, I've learned not to tell them I'm a writer. You know, mm. I, I say I'm a, I'm a teacher, you know, yeah. I creative writing because they don't want to hear about you. They want to tell you, Oh, I've got a great idea for a book. And you know, they, they all think it's easy. Everybody thinks it's easy. Nobody mm. thinks it's hard. You know, it's the hardest thing. One of the hardest things oh. in, in the world, you know, and just like your dad, that's really hard where it's almost, it's impossible. It can't be done. So coming from a, you know, an orphanage to being, owning your own bar, achieving your dream, only love can do that. Yeah. You know, and he did it. He did you know? it. Yeah. And nobody would understand. They'd say, oh, he owned, he opened, he owns a bar. That's really good. They wouldn't understand the love that it took, you know, and the endless yeah. to open that bar. Yeah, the optimism, the belief that I can do this. Yes. And I think that's what him and my mom instilled in me from a very young age. Mm-hmm. A love of reading, a love of movies and film and music, and this idea that I could do anything. Uh-huh. You know? Yeah, I think that's yeah. what my grandmother instilled in me. Yeah. You can do anything, just, you know, you can do anything you want. She, she you know, Whatever I said, she never said, oh, that's impractical. She said, oh, tell me more. You know, she was always fascinated, which which told me, yes, that's a completely reasonable idea. Wow. And your mom, your grandmother raised you for part of the time. Isn't that right? 
Yeah, it was kind of an interesting situation. My father had custody of me, but we lived downstairs from my grandmother. And so I was really upstairs more than I was downstairs. And and even when we moved, I was still at my grandmother's about half the time. So wow. yeah, basically she half raised me. And I love your father's character. He really is a streamer too. Listening to Frank Sinatra records, yeah. you kind of feel like he's kind of lost in the time that he's in. What, mm. How hard was, who was the easiest and the hardest character to write in your book? Because they are characters, right? I talk about that. Like Jenny is a young girl in my book. It's not me. It's a, it's the character of Jenny as I see her now, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, no, that's absolutely, that's absolutely correct. Um, I think my father was the hardest one to write mm -hmm. because I still had all this rage. Um, I couldn't see clearly, you know, mm -hmm. my mother, I love my mother and I enjoy her company and Aww. she's hilarious. So it was easy to write about my mother. It was fun to write about my mother. Um, but my father, yeah, I was working through all this rage as I, as I wrote it. And I'm sitting, you son of a bitch, you know, <laughs> and, and for the neglect, because that's how I saw it. It was like neglect in some ways that yeah. it could have given you more and didn't, you know? Yeah, not that really, but the, the oogie stuff that I really don't want to. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah, we don't have to go. I, I mean, I wrote it, you know, I told my supervisor yeah. this, that I've never told anybody this in my life. So naturally, I put it in a book for the for worldwide distribution. But for that, and um, so I, I it was difficult to write because I was so enraged still. Yeah. But it was a strange thing. It, it, it. It it was very freeing. All of a sudden, you know, I'm I'm still. I don't want to say I hate him, but yeah. I don't. I still don't like him, but I don't feel that rage anymore. And I think it's a result of having written that essay. Yeah. You know. You yeah. know it, it named it. You know, it named yeah. the demon so it could be exercised. Hundred percent. Like we said, put some light on it. Kind of yeah. disappears. Um, yeah. Let's talk about fitting in. So you've been you've. You're in academia, you're teaching at these elite institutions, you have your PhD. Hello? Jim? Jim? Are you there? I'm here. Hold on. Give me one second. Sorry, my computer okay. just fried. Oh, I'm glad it wasn't me. I just felt, I was like, oh my God. Okay. I'm going to use, okay, hold on one second. I'm going to try to go in this way too. Okay. So um, do you want to read a short portion really quick while I get this going? Yeah. Let me read. Um, Actually, I'll do something funny while you're doing that. It's a short piece. I think it's, I think it's short. Let me see if I can find it. Yeah. Okay. So this is about. Um, you know, my mother and, you know, my mother had, um, a lot of addictions, um, and, and, and mental illness. And I think it was a result of her growing up in poverty. And, um, 
So I just want to read this quick piece about kind of how it's affected her. And it's actually pretty funny because my mother's charming and very funny. She took cocaine and quaaludes and acid, painkillers and black beauties. I don't know what they are, but I did them. She also liked fermented fruit and in desperate times would drink vanilla extract. But her drug of choice was speed in all its forms. She took handfuls of pills all mixed up. She got them from a local doctor who had a pain clinic in Jewett City, Connecticut, a tiny borough of a couple thousand people that used to be home to corn, grist, cotton, and sawmills, but at this time was a scattering of tumble-down homes, bars, and Friday night polka. Let's say the doctor was called Ridgeland. He had to go down back roads and over the railroad tracks into the woods to get to his office. Dr. Ridgeland had lawn chairs in the waiting room and had decorated the walls with pages torn out of National Geographic. One day he called my mother in, and in his office were bookshelves lined with huge mayonnaise jars, like the kinds referenced by, filled with every color pill imaginable. He was very weak, probably from taking the same pills he doled out to the addicts who visited his office. He would try to pump up the blood pressure cuff, and it would slide down my mother's arm. He would try to pump it back up again, and it would slide back down again, until finally he said, the hell with it. And while all this was happening, other people waiting were opening the mayonnaise jars and taking out pills by the handful. My mother also smoked marijuana, though was put off it when somebody gave her a joint laced with something that made her homicidal. She went out on the porch so she didn't kill my brother and me. Then she thought, that's stupid. I could still go inside and kill you. (laughs) So she got in her car and drove down to Gail's house. She had left my brother and me alone, but she thought that was better than killing us. Even now she cries talking about it. I tried to do the best I could to protect you kids, even from me. When I think of the hell I went through having to make these value decisions, which is worse, stay in my house and kill my kids because I'm so fucking crazy or go to Gail's where I might kill myself on the way, but at least you kids would be okay. Then I started thinking, maybe I'll kill Gail. (laughs) And I, you know, I can isn't she amazing? The way you read her, I can hear her. And it's so funny because everything happens for a reason. You know, my computer just fried, went out. I, you know, I have this backup thing where I'm using my phone. And like, right. you've got to read this piece. And we were just talking about your mom. And you capture her voice so very well. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I've known her for 54 years. So, yeah. And my twin sister said, so interesting, the frame of the mother. Um, and then my friend LaWanda's watching. Uh, Stephanie said we lost her, unfortunately, but we're back. Okay, so let's go into the second part of the interview. So we talked about fitting in. That's yeah. where we left off. How does it feel? Do you feel like Eliza Doolittle when you're in these elite institutions teaching elite individuals at, you know, these academic, you know, classes? Like, how does that feel to you, considering yeah. how poor you grew up? Yeah, it, you know, it's a good question. At NYU, I definitely felt that way. You know, mm. I was going to school with all these rich kids, and I was just, you know, the, the girl from the projects. Um, and I was constantly going into these restaurants and feeling like, I think I mentioned in the book, the poor white trash alarm is going off, you know, poor white trash, poor white trash, poor white trash. Um, and I always felt that. And I still do sometimes. But when I got to St. Andrews, and I think this is a testament to the culture of the School of English in particular there, I felt instantly like I belonged. Mm. I said, 
these are my people. And I never felt out of place. I was never made to feel out of place. I was just welcomed with open arms. And I never felt like Eliza Doodle Doolittle there. Think, yeah, it's amazing. And really, that's because of the school. I mean, it's just a bunch of really kind, brilliant, funny weirdos who, you know, just love other weirdos. And they just make everybody feel comfortable. Everybody's welcome. Everybody's treated respectfully and kindly. Um, but if and you're not- so British, UK, you're in Scotland, like some of the most, you know, elitist, classist societies, yeah. but maybe America can be worse in a way. How do you feel in writing communities? Have you been fully accepted? Do you fully accept yourself as one of them? You know, I always say that, you know, I couldn't stay at the corporate law firm, not because they couldn't accept me, but because I couldn't accept myself as one of them. And I'm glad I couldn't. But in writing communities, I feel like you feel. I felt like I met this quirky group of people from yeah. all different ranges. And it just, I felt normal. Yeah. And I felt normal before. Yeah. Yeah. I felt really welcomed by, oddly enough, the writing community I found on Facebook. Everybody's mm-hmm. Really cool and a bunch of crazy, brilliant, you know, Don Quixote weirdos. Uh, and I love it. Um, other places where I've interacted with some writers, um, I haven't felt as much as though I fit in because there is a certain element in the writing community that is, there's a lot of money, you know. Yeah. And it really influences the, the kind of. Print- that is that allows some people to be writers I exactly mean, like, yeah exactly and, and and i think it and this i'm not there's nothing wrong with that kind of work but it's right. just not work i can identify with you know middle class or wealthy you know people in wealthy families writing about middle class and wealthy families and there's there's a place for that obviously but it's it's not something i can understand and i also can't identify with you know people will say at the bar or at the pub you know, about the latest retreat they're going to. And, you know, people will send me this, oh, you could, you should apply to this. It's a month of Italy. And, you know, the tuition's 1,500 euros or $1,500. And I'm thinking, and I can't, you know, I have to work. I can't take that time off to write. And I don't have that tuition fee anyway, you know? And, And so in that sense, I haven't really felt that I could fit in. So you know, it's a, but on, on Facebook, oddly enough, I found a lot of people like myself, people like me. I can't believe I said like myself, because there's almost no circumstance in which it's okay to say myself, um, grammatically. <laughs> the comes English major. The yeah, English comes out. Um, yeah. Talk about the generational aspect of poverty. You know, I would say that, you know, I'm really glad my mom doesn't have anything because there is a burden in the inheriting stuff. And I'm going to inherit my mom's Indian dolls. And that's about it. If I get those, hopefully they're in the will to me. Um, if there is a will, <laughs> we might just have to go grab them and steal all yeah. her little Indian dolls. But uh, talk about, you know, you supported your sister. You took your sister in. Like, what is the pressure of that like? And when you, so I don't know, I want people to know that this book, we are not okay. Please buy this book. If you're watching this post live, please buy this book. We are not okay. It's Indie Blue um, publishing the press, Indie Blue. And uh, I put the link in the comments, but it's really um, a number of social justice essays. You Mm -hmm. talk a lot about inequities and you talk a lot about the questions how do we fix this you may not have all the answers but you raise a lot of important questions for us to think about 
um, about how we just accept poverty in America? Like, was that one of your goals? Were you trying to change the world in a way or change people's hearts and minds through narrative? You know, for a long time, and I think this is the case with any book that's a true thing, for a long, a long time, I wasn't really sure what I was trying to do. All I knew was that I had reached the stage where I absolutely could not keep it secret anymore, keep the secret anymore. I had to say it. I had to just, you know, like Robert Lowell, yet why not simply say what happened, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's what I did. But at a certain point, when I started writing, I kept scoping out from the memoir to write about, you know, general issues, social justice policy. And then I realized, okay, okay. so yeah. 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 And I, then I realized, oh, okay. I see what I'm doing here. I'm, I'm writing a, not a polemic, but I'm writing, um, Mm -hmm. you know, because I really wasn't interested in writing memoir for the sake of memoir. It had to mean something for the wider population. And so I guess that's what I was doing. I was trying to make people aware of it who weren't aware of it. And, and more than anything, I was trying to reach out to other people who grew up like we did and say, um, or like I did and um, say, it's okay. There are loads of us out here and you've done nothing wrong. Yeah. We are not Okay. Yeah, we, are, we are okay. Yeah, we are okay. And but but say that the we are not okay is mostly for people who don't know about it, saying, listen, you know, we're not okay. You have to start confronting this issue. And as a nation, we have to start discussing it and dealing with it and change a whole lot of stuff if we're gonna fix it. Yeah, and uh, you know, in a lot of ways, your book is so experimental in the way that it's structured, but it did remind me of some of my favorite memoirs, um, Jeanette Walls' Glass Castle. Um, She grew up in abject poverty. Stephanie Land's Made, which was made into a Netflix movie that I love. I love the original source material, the book, better than the series, even though the series, the movie is great on Netflix. But there's something about the written word. Um, I'm trying to think of other ones, but, you know, but you do it in a new and novel way. Um, The only thing a little similar is maybe Nickel and Dimes by another journalist, um, which is another book I love. Did those books have any influence on you when you were writing this or are you trying to stay separate and just go down your own lane? No, I haven't even read those books and I'll tell you why. I can't take it. I, you know, I was just talking with my sister about this too. People say, oh, you should read Nickel and Dime. You should read this and you should read that. It's, I learned so much. I can't handle it. I I have to manage my anxiety as well. And one of the ways I manage it is not reading things that remind me of my childhood that are going to upset me. You know, if yeah. it's fiction, fine, I'll read it. You know, like, um, you know, it's funny. Um, I was reading um, Sing Unburied Sing by Jesmyn Ward. And uh, God, she's amazing. I've read every single thing she's ever written. And I recommended it to a friend. And he said, yeah, it's brilliant, but it's really uh, it's really depressing. I mean, it was really grim. And I'm like, oh, really? I, I, <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't think so. I just found it. I mean, that's how I grew up. To me, that's just like, you know, that's the way it is. Yeah. But um, so my influences were, I mean, the first and foremost, John Burnside, who mm-hmm. was, my, you know, my tutor that I told you that he told me, kept telling me to write the book. And um, he wrote a wonderful memoir called A Lie About My Father. And I kept referring to that when I was conceiving, how, you know, how am I going to do this? And I just read it a couple of times. And then um, um, Kiesi Lehman, uh, Heavy. Oh, oh, I, oh right? my 
One of my favorite books of all time. Incredible. No other man I know is talking about weight, gambling, addiction. Yeah. And the shame that's at the, at the backside of heavy, which I've dealt with shame over my own body and stuff. And um, I mean, Oh, I I want to take a class with that guy. Oh my gosh. Me too. That book was Mm -hmm. revelatory. And then I heard he won the genius grant and I said, hell yeah, he did. Yes. The genius grant. I was never so happy except for Juno. Um, to yeah. hear somebody won a genius grant could not have gone to a, a bigger genius. Um, he's amazing. And um, Natasha Trethaway, Memorial Drive. Have you read that? No. What's it called? Memorial Drive. Her oh. her mother was killed by her her stepfather. And um, oh wait, is this told in reportage, like investigation style? No. Okay, because I've a book similar to that that was, yeah. It goes into reportage toward the end, and I think it's because it was so painful that yeah. she had to look at it that way. I um, think I read this. It's amazing book. Yeah. It's incredible. And then also, uh, Lem Say, My Name Is Why. So this is the stuff I read while I was preparing. Um, Lem Say, My Name Is Why. You know, he was put into care um, at a very young age. And that was a, 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 a fantastic book. And um, Joan Didion, of course, oh. because if you're a memoirist, you know, yeah. you got to read Joan Didion. I, I had already read her previously, mm-hmm. especially The Year of Magical Thinking. I know. That, that book saved my life when my dad died. I, um, the only way I was able to write about my dad's death is years and years of, I was trying to write like her that didn't work. And I finally found my own voice, but her yeah. writing about death and grief. Yeah. yeah. Um, I really like this book too, which I'm reading right now. It's called Fuelitarians, Are You Thinking, Drinking, Grieving, and Reading. It's one of my professors, Anne Gielson. She writes about her twin sister's death, and there's twins in it, so I have to read it. But she's yeah. a beautiful writer too. And I just, I love people who read. I mean, people like you who not only write, but you read, you teach, you love books. And it's so clear in this um, book, like from the very beginning, you're just obsessed with reading. Like that's your escape. Yeah. You know? I used to read on top of my roof when my yeah. parents fight. I'd read at the park. It was always just such a joy for me to read. And the fact that I get to meet people like you that are so talented now, and I get to meet some of my favorite writers. I really do think that it's um, wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I've, I've loved reading since as long as I can remember. I mean, my father had a beauty shop for a while before he, he went out of business. And there was this religious store next door. But I didn't know and I didn't care. I just knew that they had little sto- story books for kids. <laughs> time I got a couple of quarters I would go over there and I would get you know like the story of Noah's Ark and of course I'm not a believer or anything I just cared about the storytelling and I would get Noah's Ark and you know different stories and then my grandmother would always give me money for the riff truck you know I mean she couldn't even pay you know oh I love that part about oh, the plastic yeah. books because my mom yeah. did that too with her tips yeah isn't that a wonderful gift that she did that they gave us yeah always yeah. had money for the riff truck And I would get so, my heart would beat, you know, because they used to set out the long tables underneath the overhang in the, in the cafeteria on the outside when it was warm. And I just go along there looking for my books and clutching my money. I'd be like, I get to own a book because I would 
get books in the library like 10 at a time as many as I could get and I my mom wouldn't let me read them in the bathtub because I'd always drop them and you know fees back then were a lot people don't remember but yeah it was a quarter a day which was a lot of money back then and if you ruined a book it could be like 10 15 dollars it was a Mm -hmm. lot of money yeah we had to be careful with our books and whenever I could own a book I would just read it over and over in the bathtub like Judy latest or whatever or Beverly clearly whatever it was you know Yeah, I would climb a tree and read. <laughs> and there was this place like, um, I think it was about two miles from the house. And I used to, it was called Avery Point. And I used to go down there, bike down there in the morning, bring enough food for the day and just read all day lying on the grass with the ocean, you know, uh, in the background or in the foreground and come home at twilight. You know, that, that was the rule. You had to come on when the street lamps were lit, you know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, lo- I How do love- people ever want to grow up? There's so much freedom in youth. I mean... <laughs> There is. <laughs> I'm kind of lucky. I do read a lot. I'm very like people might work out and stuff. I just turn pages. I'd rather yeah. be than taking. I'd, I'd, I'd rather do that. Yeah, that's yeah. better for me. Yeah, I spend every moment I can reading. Yeah. I'm reading. You know what I'm reading right now? Have you ever read um, read Luis Alberto Urea? He's mostly a poet, oh, yeah. but he won the Pulitzer for the the yeah. But I'm reading one of his novels, The House of Broken Angels. Oh, it's so he good. Oh, it's incredible. Oh, so good. Oh, my God. It's yeah, so good. i got to read Renya Grande's Ballad of Love and Glory. She was on okay. my podcast. It's one of my favorite books. Okay. I, um, it's a romance and it's a historical novel, but she's very influenced by him. And he's one of the, like, the, you know, the godfathers of, like, that kind of writing. It's so beautifully done. I love that book. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible, incredible book. So I'm reading that right now. Wow. And I think I'm going to, I'm think I'm going to be on a Urea kick after this. Is it Urea or Urea? Yeah. I'm the yeah. worst at pronunciation. I'm a culture. Yeah. I can barely say one yeah. <laughs> I think I'm going to be on, on a Urea kick after this for a while. I can't, I can't look away from him yet. I know what you mean. I tend to get on um, kicks with certain writers. I'll read all their books one right after the other. I can't wait to get your chat book. What's your chat book called so people can look that up? And I just wanted to let you know, um, Cindy Nessinger, who I told you, she's the one that wrote the book about the mouse at the Mission Inn. She wants to find you on Facebook. You could just look up her name. I think you search Friends of Friends under my name. Cindy, you'll be able to find her. Um, Mm -hmm. And she's buying your book as we speak. And what's the name of your chat book? Uh, It's called um, Girl Lost and Found. And um, yeah, that was Alien Buddha Press. And oh, I love them. They're such a cool press. They're fantastic. They really are. Um, uh, really, they do wonderful work. And um, it's just weird stories. I mean, you know, my my last agent, he said, you know, nobody wants to publish you. You're too weird. And I try to write something normal and then it just comes out weird. So that's a chapbook of four weird stories. I love the chat book form. You know, I, I really do think there's something to be said for brevity. When I was a little girl, I love short books. Yeah. Mango Street is a short book. Um, we the Animals by Justin Torres, which mm-hmm. is fiction, but it's based on his life. That's mm-hmm. one of my favorite books. And the book is less than 100 pages. It's yeah. more of a novella. Yeah. And, um, you know, Stephen King writes a lot of short stuff. And I really love, I think it's harder to write short. It's easier to write oh, long yeah. in some ways. Oh, um, yeah. To oh, really yeah. get that idea and um so i wanted to ask you a couple more questions because there's a lot of writers that watch us what um what suggestions do you have you talked about having an agent they said you're aware like what suggestions do you have about not just the writing process but also the publishing process you've been with two different small indie presses i'm a big fan of indie presses both my books are with indies um so talk to people about how that journey was 
and how long it took and stuff. Because people think it's just magic and it does happen magically sometimes, but it takes years sometimes. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's been 30 years trying to get published, you know, and a lot of that was because I, you know, I was working and I had custody of my sister and I didn't just didn't have enough time to to write. I mean, it took me 12 years to finish my first novel mm-hmm. um, and then trying to find a publisher. Geez, uh, you know. You could try getting an agent, but it hasn't worked out well for me um, because. Huh? Oh, me neither. I agree. Because there's this, you know, if you're an unusual writer, they're going to have trouble selling you, you know, Um, the the big four, uh, and especially in the past five years, the focus has narrowed and, and, and all the books are of a certain type, you know, and anything that's not that colors outside the lines is probably going to be looked on dimly, even if they love it. You know, I got a um, rejection letter that my agent sent me from one one editor um, who said, I love this book. The ending made me cry, but it'll never sell. So I'm going to have to pass. And that was so sad because if you loved it and the ending made you cry, don't you think it would do the same for readers, but they passed. And um, so I've given up on agents at this point and I'm just querying publishers directly. And yeah. And I, I would say go with indie publishers because, you know, it's not like you're going to make any money anyway. Um, <laughs> so you might as go, might as well go with a small publisher who really cares about what they do and who is going to give your book um, the attention it needs that all books need, you know, and, and look for your favorite writers where they're published and query their query them with the publishers with your own book um, and be, be patient. It's going to take a while, you know, but make a list of the indie publishers you want in the order in which you think you'd be most appropriate for them and just start going down the list. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that is the way to go nowadays. You know, um, Annie Lamont, who's one of my favorite writers, she wrote Mercies and a a book called Bird on Bird on writing. And um, she says, because her husband is a writer and he self-published, and she said if she was putting out her books now, she would go with either an independent or self-published. She just says the markets change so much. Mm -hmm. Like Annie Lamont is kind of a quirky writer too. Like you think these, this book of essays would that, you know, would that sell if, an, of course it did. It sold, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of million. Yeah. One of my favorite books of all time, but it really is not a marketable book in some ways. It talks yeah. about addiction and memory and um, essay in essay form, but like your book, I, I mean, I do see what they mean by it won't sell, but I don't agree with that. I think it will sell to who it's supposed to sell to. And if people love a book, they share it. Writers are the best at this. Yeah. If your market is only other writers, how many other writers, how many people, there's how many MFA programs? Like, you know? Yeah, yeah. And somebody actually lamented this, that most writers wind up just writing for other writers. And I thought, well, what's wrong with that? Writers are the the, 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 the greatest weirdos in the world. That's that's the, Those are my people, weirdos. I need weirdos to be reading my books, and so do other writers. So I don't think there's anything wrong with that at all. Yeah, and you for know? anyone who's watching, please share her book if you read it and you love it. I do think that aside from just, you know, selling, it, the message is really profound and important. Um, so we only have about five minutes left. Tell people about any current projects you're working on, on any events you have, where they can buy your books, where they can find out more about you. 
Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, I have two unpublished novels. So if anybody wants to publish one of my novels, I'm available. And right now I'm working on something very weird about um, a woman whose children drown in hurricanes and she tries to kill herself, but it doesn't work. But in the process, she develops uh, psychic abilities. And so she sets up a uh, shop as a, as a psychic reader in the living room of her house. And um, see, weird. I, I just can't help myself. And um, girl, I'm a tarot card reading weirdo too. I can't wait to read that. Oh, thank you. Story or is it a book? I, you know, I'm not even sure it's that early in the process. Mm -hmm. I'm just, I'm just sketching right now. I don't know what it's going to be. I don't think it's, I think it's going to be too surf long for a story. So it might be a novella or it might be a novel. I'm not sure yet. Um, and if they want to know more about me, they can go to my website, christianlivermore.com. Um, and my books are available on bookshop.org. Uh, but I realize that's expensive for some people. So they're also available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, um, pretty much everywhere books are sold. And also, you know, you can order it through your favorite independent bookstore. A lot of readers have let me know that they've done it that way and they'll get the book in for you. And um, wow. it's not only does it support the writer and the publisher, but it supports an independent bookstore that you love. And for everyone who's watching, um, just message me that you bought her book. This is on the honor policy, and I will send someone a life, a gem cup. I'm going to send one to Christian. Of course, I send all my writers one. Um, but for everyone that buys her book, I'll put you in a drawing. Just message me that you bought her book. Like I said, honor policy, and I will send you a life, a gem cup. These are cool. That's great. Thank you. <laughs> Who doesn't need another coffee cup? Yeah, um, exactly. So I got to do a couple shout outs. I got to shout out my next podcast is March 22nd, Lucy Rodriguez Hanley. She's one of my favorite Long Beach writers. She's a screenwriter. She's a playwright. She's a writer. And uh, she's a Latina that I performed with in the past at Beyond Baroque. She's going to be here on March 22nd. There's also two AWP events. Anyone going to AWP, please come watch. In Landia Writers Read, March 10th, Stage 1, 1030. Stephanie Barbie Hammer will be there, who's, who's here tonight. Katie Porter. Nakia Chaining, who's one of the most amazing um, writers from San Bernardino. And James Coates, also a local Inland Empire writer. So I wanted to give a shout out to Inlandia and to that reading. And let me just say this. I, you are just the coolest person ever, Christian. I hope we see you. How are you? Oh, this was so much. This was wasn't it? This was a great conversation. I had a blast. Let's do it again next week. Let's do it again. You're going to come on season four, I think. We got because I have a lot more questions I want to ask you. Okay. You talk about your new works. Um. So I'm going to thank everyone for, you know, dealing with the tech issues and all that. And I thank you, Christian, for running with it and just reading the piece about your mom, which I loved. And let's tell everyone goodbye. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you.